sounds of Stan Getz here on a beautiful Saturday afternoon in the desert. Welcome back inside the Parisi Palace. High above 2919 East Broadway. This is our number two of the Jake Feinberg Show on Power Talk. Um, and uh, it's just wonderful to bring back uh, to the program a dear friend and a guy who's just opened his heart. And, uh, you know, as as he's explained to the world and to me, if you take care of the music, the music will take care of you. Todd Barkin, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, bright moments to you, Jake. How you doing, my man? Just trying to make the world safe for Bebop. I know, and uh, and that's where we should pick up because uh, I wanted to ask you about the first time that you encountered Mr. Stan Getz. Well, as Zoot Sims uh, once <laughs> so wisely observed, Stan Getz was a nice bunch of guys. Yeah. Um, Stan Getz really was one of the most vivid uh, illustrations to me of the very, very razor-thin line between artistic and autistic, in that he he could really change uh, you know, on a dime. He could be one of the nicest guys in the world, or he could be one of the most difficult and and almost uh, seem evil. Although he wasn't evil, he just uh, mainly it had to do with the mind-altering substances that would bring out the less uh, you know uh, the less sanguine elements of his personality. I mean, I first started working with Stan. Uh, the I met him actually in the '60s when I was with Rossan. I met him in New York. Uh, through Rossan, Roland Kirk, and Jack Whittemore in the 60s. But uh, I first started to get to work to him. I had to first had the privilege and the honor to work with Stan Getz and, and really be, start to become close friends with Stan Getz in 1972 when he first worked there with his band at the Keystone Corner in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And Stan Getz and I became very close friends. In fact, for a few years, he even lived in San Francisco. And, and uh, you know, I, I got to know Stan quite well, uh, you know, the pros and cons, but but I counted him as a very, uh, very close friend. And he once said that uh, Keystone Corner was the greatest jazz club uh, uh, that he knew in the world at that time. They made this state, that statement in the late 70s. So he played there, I would say, uh, about 15 times uh, during the 11 years that the Keystone Corner was was open. And so I got to know him quite well. And then, of course, uh, I stayed in his home uh, back here in New York, where you, I'm talking to Jake now. Uh, <coughs> in New York, he lived at a place that was actually originally owned by, or owned at one time by Washington Irving, um, was it the headless the, horseman the, guy. the Gershwin uh, Mansion? Was it? Yeah. The, well, it, it was called Irvington on Hudson. I did. Irvington. Dig. Washington Irving. Yes. Was there. Yes. The famed author. You lived. You lived George there. Gershwin. You lived. That you lived there. No, I stayed. You with stayed. I'm sorry. You stayed. I there. Stayed with him. I would stay two or three weeks at a time. In fact, uh, it was Stan. That uh, this was an early. This was. Uh, very soon after he first worked at the Keystone, I think it, at the in the winter of '73 into '74, I actually uh, wound up staying back there with Stan for about a week. And Joao Gilberto, um, 
who would later work at the Keystone Corner with Stan, was actually staying in Stan Getz's uh, attic apartment in Irvington. But we didn't really know he was there. I mean, he was, uh, we used to call him the spooky elf because he kept to himself and he was a little, he was a cute little guy, but we never would, would see him. He'd keep, keep to himself up in the attic uh, with his, uh, he smoked a lot of herb and drank a lot of very strong Brazilian coffee and, and chanted to Mayor Baba. <laughs> um, but uh, I, that's when I met uh, João Gilberto in Stan Getz's home. It was New Year's Eve morning. Uh, the, the, new, the new year was uh, uh, still not uh, yet light out, but it was the new year. And I, was, I couldn't sleep, and, and I just I went down to, to get a little snack in the kitchen, a very capacious kitchen that Stan had there. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, little Joao came in, the little elf, the guy we called the spooky elf, very sweet guy, though. Very shy, very tiring, very, very sweet in his own way. He used to call me Taji, which is a Portuguese word for a chocolate. <laughs> Say Taji. And uh, so he came in, and then he got a good vibe. We, we started a kind of just a very rough. He didn't speak much English. I spoke no Portuguese, so it was not a real a fluid conversation. But may, somehow he got a good vibe, and he he went up and brought down his guitar and started to serenade me for New Year's Day. And pretty soon, uh, the almost the entire household was down there in the kitchen. And that was my first experience with Jean Gilberto. And he kept playing this song, which is on the Getz Gilberto album from the Keystone, which I, which I fell in love with. It's called E Preciso, Preciso Perdoar, or however you pronounce it in correct Portuguese. Brazilian Portuguese, but it means e preciso perdoar means um, and excuse my bad pronunciation. It means it is necessary to forgive. So later on, um, you know, I would have to forgive Stan many times, uh, you know, because just uh, his behavior was quite, uh, you know, would get he'd get a little uh, out. One reason or another. Well, I want to, you know, I want to. Uh, this is something that's important. Uh, Johnny Mandel. I just came back from Los Angeles. He like almost verbatim to what you said. He said Stan, not to him. Stan was evil. There were times where he was evil. He would give someone was cleaning up and trying to get off of heroin, and instead of paying them for the gig, he'd give them a bag of, of heroin. Astrid <laughs> uh, Gilbert Gilberto, uh, when she sang charmingly. Uh, you know, on that album that became a pop hit, he wanted, he called, he made it clear that he wanted her to have zero credits on the album. Nowhere, maybe get paid for the session, but can you talk about a specific... Well, yeah, I, I'm, I was getting to that. I think it, that's why I originally said in this conversation the thin line between artistic and autistic. Yeah. Uh, Stan straddled that like a, a colossus. I mean, he could be the nicest guy and give you the shirt off his back one moment and then be the one of the most evil, cantankerous, uh, even malicious and pernicious individuals in the world the next. I mean, he went back and forth. Can you give like an example? A pendulum. And 
Uh, I, I experienced that many, 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 many times. Uh, one of the most classic was in the late 70s when Stan was playing there with his outstanding quartet with uh, Billy Hart on drums and Clint Houston on bass and Joanne Barkeen on piano. And, and he had bought some what's called Delauded, which is also called Housewives Heroin. It's a morphine derivative that he had bought from a, uh, a, less than, a less than reputable pharmacy, which happened to uh, also mislabel it. So there was twice as much dope in the Delauded. He would melt it down and shoot it up, <clears throat> and he uh, actually overdosed on my stage right there in the middle of uh, the girl from Ipanema. He go, ba 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 And he rolled up into a little ball of uh, atrophied protoplasm underneath the <laughs> piano that Joanne Burkeen was playing. And Billy Hart and I had to pick him up, like with two el- one elbow each, and, and, and pick up this big medicine ball gets and take him out into the alley where the paramedics were who injected him with the same thing that uh, Prince got when he landed in that airplane emergency landing in Illinois it was called Narcon and that would neutralize all the opiates in his system and he woke up like he'd just gotten out of the shower now we had just saved his life he probably would have died right there on stage so we you know they gave him the Narcon the paramedics that I had called and uh, we saved his life and he, he looked he, he you know he woke, he woke like a deer in the headlights and he looks at me and he says, unlike the deer in the headlights, he was very articulate, and he said, Todd, where's my bread? I can Now, that's not the most appreciative greeting I've ever received from somebody who, for whom you just saved their life. And I said, Stan, we just gave all the bread back to all the customers because you OD'd on stage, and I had to refund all the money to the people because you OD'd. Well, where's my money? I said, well, I'm, I, you know, there is no money, and I can't pay you for tonight because we didn't, you know, in fact, I'm going to have to dock you a, a substantial amount for the week because it just, you know, it really killed my Saturday night business. And uh, that's the biggest night of the week, out of which I, you know, it provides a good amount of the revenue with which I'm able to pay the band. Now, I only wound up docking him $1,000 for the whole week. Uh in, but in the meantime, you know, he's, he says, well, take me back to the hotel. So the doorman and I personally put him in a car, my car, and took him back to his hotel, which was on uh, Union Square, the Hyatt on Union Square in San Francisco, for all you geography fans. <laughs> and we get into, the, uh, into his fancy suite overlooking Union Square, and he immediately runs bolts into the bathroom, uh, puts a bunch more uh, delauded on a spoon, uh, heats it up, shoots it up again, staggers out into the bedroom right in front of us, and and passes out again, OD'd again. So we had to call the same paramedics, and unfortunately the same two guys showed up who had just been with us uh, in, in Emory Lane next to the club, when we saved his life the first time. Same two paramedics. 
They took one look at me and they said, Barkin, if we ever see you again with this schmuck, you're both going to jail. Jesus. That's all there is to it. Where's this shit? I said, it's probably in the bathroom. So they went and confiscated his stuff. They shot him up with some Narcon immediately and took his shit and, and left. And uh, gave us some paperwork for having confiscated the, the dope and everything else. And uh, let me, let me and just, I had I, to I, sign yeah, I wanna, personal responsibility for Getz. And Getz got up and he started being belligerent with me. So there, and with the guy uh, Walid, who, who was my doorman. Fortunately, Walid was a very tough guy. He just passed away. He was one of the legendary jazz figures of the Bay Area, Walid Richardson. So Walid Rahman Richardson, but anyway, so he starts getting belligerent, and he makes a bolt, you know, he makes a play to go get the, get on the phone and cop some more dope. We had to pull the plug out of the uh, out of the wall so he couldn't call anybody and take the phone out of the room. And in the meantime, you know, I had to call his wife um, back in Irvington. She came out and got him and took him up to Hazleton, Minnesota, where he went through some uh, rehab uh, shortly after that. Brother Barkan, um, you're, you're... But this is, this is a good example yeah. of the, of the oh, yeah. you know, his evil, his evil side. Let me, this is, you're, you, you were, exactly. Now, what's interesting is that, what's really fascinating is that Bill Crow, the bass player, uh, I mean, we're talking 20 years before... Uh, literally after a gig, Stan wants to go to a party. He's downstairs. He's shooting heroin. Uh, he ODs. Uh, they have to give him artificial respiration. He comes to, and he says, get off my clothes. You're making them dirty. And then he says, um, they said, Stan, you were dead. Okay. And he, and he said, yeah, you know what? I know I was higher than all of you guys. Now, my point is this. I read Donald Megan's Megan's book, and that keeling over on the bandstand at the Keystone is in that book. Um, there was also an experience in '81 where he had a similar experience in the hotel. You're, you're saying it was the same night. Was there another time in '81 when he also uh, had experienced this problem with with uh, ODing on pain pills? Yeah, it happened a couple times. Yes. How, so let me, but let's just put it like this, Barkin, because Todd Barkin, it was a musician in his own right and cultivated the hippest jazz club in the world. The cat that I'm working with on this project idolized you, man. Idolized you uh, from a distance with the Turkish coffee. You brought in the baddest acts. Stan totally screws <laughs> totally screws up the Saturday night, but the following evening. He just played transcendent music. Is that right? I mean, he was, he was for all the headaches, he was, what made him, I mean, I just got off the phone with Lalo Schifrin, okay? Lalo, right. Lalo said that Dizzy respected Stan because like Charlie Parker, albeit different language, Stan had his, added his own language to the music of jazz. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. He, he, you know, I mean, our music is all about Telling your own story in your own way. And whether it was Dexter Gordon or John Coltrane, who I actually heard John Coltrane in my presence talk about Stan Getz, Stan Getz was idolized by John Coltrane because, I mean, he, he had a sound. I mean, Coltrane loved Sonny Stitt, 
playing tenor, and he, but he equally loved him even more probably Stan Getz because Stan Getz had so unmistakably a sound of his own. He told his own story in his own way, and that's what our and, and Miles uh, did likewise. I mean, these gentlemen, everybody across the board that I knew thought Stan Getz was the cat's meow, even if he was an asshole. You know, he still. Even if he was evil and pernicious and and everything else uh, bad, were you uh, were you he aware? Could also, be yeah. wonderful, and also even as a human being, he showed incredible generosity to me. And then you know, and and incredible, and jowl with incredible selfishness. So you know, it was it was definitely not a, a simple story. It, it, there was a, a complexity to the situation. That was quite remarkable, and I've only experienced the, that that kind of dichotomy with a very few people. I wanted, to... but it it is it is part of it's it's part it, it's maybe writ more large with a character like Getz, but it is part of a, of a syndrome in the arts. I mean, Carl Jung wrote about it, you know, uh, uh, over a hundred years ago. I mean, you know, it's it's. It's part of a syndrome. I don't know when Jung wrote this, but the, that the artistic uh, uh, part of your character, of, of the, the the artist psyche, uh, that part of the psyche bleeds the personal for the artistic, and and that truer words have never been spoken. I mean, I used that quote on the liner in the liner notes for a Hank Mobley record. I mean, many years ago. Mm-hmm. But it, it it holds as true today as ever, and or even more so. I mean, and it's something that we have to. It's not that you know you know these people should be should literally get away with murder, but it's something we have to understand as about the constitution of some artists. All artists, that is not the case because I've dealt with some artists who. who Remained as gentle and easygoing and as and as beatific. Uh, I mean, John Coltrane was quite like that. Uh, as uh, you know, as, as, as Grover Washington Jr. was like that. Just as nice as the day is long. But people like I mean, Bird had a little bit of an evil, evil streak in him. I don't think it was as as broad as as Getz's was, but uh, you know, the, the thing is that that uh, it, it exists, and with Stan, it was it was more pronounced than than almost than I saw in almost any other person that I've ever dealt with in in this music. Todd Bark talking to Todd Barkin here on the Jake Feinberg show, and he's just as glib as ever. Can you talk about um, the? Um, um, uh, I can't remember the the the, the drug that. Uh, were you aware of Monica's? Uh, I don't want to say diabolical, but there was some kind of. Uh, uh, she would sprinkle this drug in his food that would make him horribly ill. Did you did you see him? Did you know the pain? Yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, I don't re- I don't recall the name of this substance. Uh, but it was uh, at this moment I don't recall the name, but it, it was something used with alcoholics that you would put it in there. Uh, Antibuse. 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 Yes, Dexter even wrote a tune by that name. 
Um, yeah, uh, Ant Abuse, he, she definitely did put it in his food. He did definitely get sick, uh, and he was re- horrified by that. He used it as part of his case in, in the, the horribly bitter divorce case that ensued between uh, Stan and Monica. Which 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 lasted. I mean, the ramifications and 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 ill effects of it lasted up through Getz's uh, demise. Yeah. Uh, even though they did get divorced, and Stan did find uh, you know other partners in life, uh, it was still you know it was still a very you know it was definitely the War of the Roses in terms of of the fight and. That ant abuse was a major bone of contention between the two of them. I was going to say, uh, I, I, uh, I had Dr. Patrick Gleason come down for the interview because at the Keystone Corner, he relayed to me that after a gig, maybe possibly during that 78 run, uh, there's Getz. Uh, Gleason had been commissioned by KJAZ to write a, um, a commercial, tune for a commercial, and so he uh, was like, well, great. I'll, you know, I know Billy Hart. He's in the band. I'll bring him in. And it'd be great to get Stan to come in and do a, a, you know, a solo over it. Well, uh, he, the, the, the gig finishes at Todd Barkin's Keystone Corner and uh, gets saddles right up to the bar to the most elegant, beautiful Nashira Priester. And he is hitting on her like no other. She wants nothing to do with him. Um, but Stan was... I mean, yeah, the point is that eventually he, Stan actually made Gleason pick up his saxophone case before they went to cut the session and then rambled on at a diner for four hours about himself. So, I mean, in, in, do, do you, you talk, it was so perfect, you know, artist and autistic, but um, aside from the drugs, uh, was he, uh, um, was he, was he, um, totally caught up in once he became a pop star he was a popular star in America he, for a long time he was one of the only cats that won a Grammy for improvisational music <coughs> did, did, did you was did he have uh, an ego that I mean like most cats do when they get to that level but uh, combined with the good looks uh, I mean can you talk about a story at the Keystone when, when he had four women at, at the table they all thought that they were with him <laughs> Well, I mean, I saw that happen, but I mean, you know, I think that he was a, you know, he was an Adonis of his time. I mean, he was a good-looking cat, and he played very romantic music, and he did have women that, you know, uh, I don't know what the, the, you know, the language prohibitions on this show was, but they were definitely star fuckers, uh, you know, uh, follow, you know, hovering around him at all times but uh he he was he was a very uh you know yeah he was but i mean i didn't i didn't feel that that was any more pronounced an element than i saw many many times in the jazz world he just happened to be quite a bit bigger star i mean i don't think he was a bigger star than miles davis but he was he was a star, and he had his, you know, he had his groupies, as as did hundreds of other artists that I've known. 
you know, Cedar Walton used to kind of very uh, <coughs> wryly observe. He said, even a, you know, even a homely guy like me, uh, the Klieg lights, uh, you know, help me score every once in a while. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it you know, it, it, the bandstand, the Klieg lights, as, as Cedar so eloquently called them, the Klieg lights are, you know, a real, you know, do help you in that, in that, in that way, and so Stan, I, I Stan did he have more than his share of adoration from his fans, not quite on the level of Frank Sinatra and Miles Davis, but at, he was he was this bona fide superstar, and to this day, his name is one of the best known uh, household names of jazz. You know, Stan Getz. And the Getz Gilberto record, there, there were millions of babies made to that record. Right. And, no, I love what you're. Yeah, it was up there with what's going on with Marvin Gaye. No, I mean, yeah, there, that was that was a baby maker. That a record. baby maker. Now, um, like Zoops. it even supplanted. You know, I mean, this guy's that record even supplanted uh, "Hard Day's Night" on the charts uh, of the Beatles. For for weeks, uh, it was so popular. So more popular than the Beatles, it was outselling a a huge Beatle record for for a period of weeks. I mean, it didn't do it, you know, all year or even more than a few months. But it, that's some indication of how popular that record was. Um, did you did, can you talk about the African American? We got about three minutes here. Uh, I wanted you to n- talk about the way, uh, you know, Stan idolized, came from the Lester Young School and Dexter Gordon. Can you talk about the African-American cats like Dizzy, what they said about Stan in regard to his playing, why they respected him? Well, why they respected him, there's a wonderful story about when when Stan was very nervous when he first met Lester Young because obviously he did get great inspiration and and, and artistic uh he was is artistically influenced profoundly by Lester Young uh as he influenced John Coltrane and uh Stan you know met uh Prez at a drug dealer up in Harlem and he was very nervous and uh you know and Lester Young said to him well you know, Stan said, "Oh man, I'm, I'm I'm real. You're one of my heroes," and uh, you know, and so Leslie Young was very nonchalant he, because they're they're you know both getting high in the same place in Harlem, and he says to Stan very very uh, ingenuously, "Well, nice eyes, lady gets nice eyes." I read that in the book. I love that. Nice eyes. He goes, "Keep keep going, man," and just walked away. But, I love but it. they they really they much did uh you know the, the cats were very respectful of gets they might not have personally liked them that much but are you know in, in some cases some cases uh, they were those those things didn't matter dexter and and stan actually uh, i have a wonderful picture from them hugging one another of them hugging one another at the keystone because stan didn't really you know he had thought dexter's sound was a little cold but when he lived in san francisco he actually came and heard dexter a few times and he started to fall in love with dexter's lyricism and depth and warmth 
and they became fast friends and to, for the uh, rest of their lives. And uh, they had enormous respect because these guys played their own song in their own way. Uh, and even even though Stan at first was put off by by Getz's, by uh, Dexter's sound, he eventually got to understand. And Dexter, you know, Dexter influenced Coltrane, but turned around to be influenced by Coltrane. Brother Bob, and, yeah, and, no, we... and likewise, uh, Dexter said that he drew inspiration uh, from Getz as as well as he did from Lester Young, and and. Uh, uh, even though stylistically, you know, they didn't have that many similarities, except a very original kind in their each in their own way, an original kind of melodicism, swinging melodicism, and which is the, the essence of, of this music, as far as I'm concerned. Well, my friend, um, we'll be coming to see you on video. You did. I I can't thank you enough, brother Barkan. Uh, you're the you're the man, and uh, thank you for taking the time today, brother. And uh, and you, you laid some great knowledge on us. I love you, bud. Thank you. Well, as, as Rasan told us, bright moments. Always, brother. Be good. Okay. Later on. And that's it. That's a wrap for the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks to Mike Roper. We'll be back next week. Peace. I've been playing for quite a while. I've been riding the world. You're tired. I've been riding the You're a gig! And ain't got no money. I know gig whenever you call it.